0: Why do you look for the living among the dead? No, yes. oh, <coughs> oh, can't be serious. That is some bullshit is that? Right there. The Beginning in fact,
1: we thought Bullshit. Bullshit, bullshit, bullshit. bullshit. So, no, good
0: good you, you. are not
2: even real. god.
0: Welcome on back. I'm wearing. A, I was wearing a camouflage hat, so that. felt Hey how
2: how y'all doing? Good morning everybody. Good morning welcome, on this welcome, on this welcome. blessed Sunday. Oh, uh, God, especially y'all, right back there in the very back in pew. The very back. Now we see y'all come in. Y'all come in. Y'all sit in that very back pew. Mm, they sitting. Now we stand in real soon. First of all, we want to say sorry that we didn't open our church doors when the storm was uh, real bad out there. You know, but we we thought we just we wanted to keep it clean. When you're a kid, do you clean your room unless someone asks you? No, you do not. Sure don't. No, you do not. Praise Jesus, as it says in Leviticus. Hey, what's up, back pew people? We just want to start with something (laughs) 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 non-controversial. Yep, uh, oh. just something to something that I feel we can all agree on. Yeah, just something real easy going. <laughs> I think we should say that if we do have any listeners in uh, in the in the Houston area or in Florida, we hope you guys are doing okay. Oh yeah, um, yeah. we we hope that supplies have reached you, aid has reached you, mm. uh, you're you're safe, family safe, all of that stuff. Even out here on the liberal left coast, <laughs> we care about you. We hope you're doing all right. Yeah, we do. Yeah. Amen to that. Uh, this one's going to be. This one's going to have a little bit of a different flavor.
0: Yeah. So we, we recorded this episode. sans Dan. Yeah. Uh, the dude has become quite a hot shot. Hard to lock down. Scheduling issues arose. Wow. I didn't want to say uh, it. So what we did was I interviewed Danielle. Alone in a bedroom
2: Okay uh, Alright <laughs> Listen Now people are gonna be like I kept waiting for that podcast To get saucy <laughs> And didn't and get it saucy it did not get saucy Sure didn't get saucy <laughs> It was really thoughtful it was, And kind of uh, Measured Yeah It felt Just very Just two adults Having a conversation. conversation Yeah No Weird No sauciness
0: But so yeah What what you're gonna hear Is mostly her thoughts And reflections To, to my questions with her When we were one on one and we just thought we would pipe in some of our our reflections, some of our conversations
2: as if we were there. Right. So it's just going to have a slightly different flavor. Just it's easy, still the back easy. pew. Yep. And you know what? We go back to doing it the way we've always been doing yeah. it. Just don't freak out, guys. This was a scheduling thing. Guys, yeah. we're going to be it's okay. It's going to be okay. We can make it past 12 episodes. You're all right. Come here. Rest your head in my... In my generous bosom Generous Rest it right there So generous Kind of sweaty Also weirdly shaven I had to do that for the job That's why I was gone Mm That's why I had to shave it for the thing I was gone for Mm -hmm. Look, if you have more questions, hit me in the DM We're going to get into this Danielle Bennett, one of my favorite human beings I'll uh, say that as well In history Mm -hmm. Uh, Remarkable human being Love her uh, when I was a kid, I loved the film Braveheart, right? If, Are yeah. you familiar As a with kid, the film? Yeah. I saw it way too early. Okay, I was going to say. far too young. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I did love it. Not I was, quite that early. I was exposed to the double VHS <laughs> cassette box of Braveheart. Oh, God. Uh, but at the very, very end of that movie, if you haven't seen Braveheart in a while, you don't need to watch it again. But yeah, you can if you want. But at the very end, uh, no spoilers, you just hear... Um. Uh, you just hear a little narration at the end is like the, the Scots are running into battle and there's a narration that's like um, in the Scots, they fought like warrior poets. They fought like Scotsmen. And they won their freedom. And that's how the movie ends. And I was like, a warrior poet sounds badass <laughs> as hell. What is that? And then I met Danielle Bennett. And Daniel that was Bennett. the first time that I was like, Oh, that's what a warrior poet is.
0: God damn right.
2: I God. think we just <laughs> God damn
0: right. I think we just found our
2: episode title. So with no further ado, I'm a fucking warrior, warrior poet, poet on the podcast today. Katsu. <laughs> to Daniel a Danielle Bennett. A dude.
0: Can you give me your bio in thirty seconds or less?
1: My name is Danielle Bennett. I work in communications for a large education nonprofit that runs schools in underserved communities in Los Angeles, Tacoma, Seattle, and Memphis. And I'm also a poet. I write, I perform, I teach workshops, and I speak. I was 21 when I started teaching 18 and 17-year-olds in Inglewood. I taught 12th grade government economics and AP government. And I think that alone, no matter what neighborhood you're teaching in, is a strange dynamic um, and requires uh, a lot of accepting failure and really hunkering down on what classroom management looks like But I think there was a lot of trust building to do. I had to acknowledge to my kids within the first two days, I don't look like you. I don't come from the same neighborhood. This is, quite honestly, this is my background. This is where I come from. But I'm teaching government, so we're going to spend a lot of time talking about diverse perspectives, and you're going to have to dive in. I'm going to have to dive into your world, and you're going to have to dive into mine for any of this to make sense. So I think I was really up front. And I had a a kid my first year, and I'll never forget her saying this to me. Her name was Samra Carroll, and I love her. And she came uh, to my classroom one day after school, and she was like, you know what, Bennett? The reason why we like you is because real recognize real. And you're the realist. <laughs> <laughs> I, really, I really appreciated that. But that is probably one of the best lessons I ever learned as a teacher is just to be completely honest. Mm-hmm. I, I wasn't always honest. There were times I didn't know the answers to questions they asked me and I did not tell them that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> How do you find the line between like faking it until you make it and being like honest?
1: Uh, that's a, also a hard question because I fake it till I make it a lot. It's like a, a strength of mine. Uh, How so? I think it's a matter of discernment. There's sometimes when you have to fake it till you make it um, for sake of confidence and because you know that you can give any moment your best and that's all you got. So, for example, in the classroom, like there are times when I'm like, I didn't know what I was doing. Mm -hmm. But to constantly admit you don't know what you're doing will lose you credibility with lots and lots of kids Mm. and can derail their learning. So really for the sake of their... Their best interest and mine. It's okay. I'm gonna do my best. I'm gonna have to fake it through some moments until I can learn better and pause, and then I'm gonna have to figure out what are the moments that I need to be super honest. Like I remember in my I think second or third year teaching, I got my wisdom teeth removed, and I was knocked out, and my body did not take well to it. And I was gonna take one sub day, I ended up taking like three or four, and I tried to come back in, and I was a like constant pain pills. And I told my kids, I was like, guys, I have to be honest. I I'm in a lot of pain right now, and I um I cannot give you all the energy I would normally give. Can you give some back to me? And my kids were so good; they got it because they were like, "Oh, she's being really honest right now about mm-hmm. what she needs from us." And I had earned um we had enough relationship building with all my kids for them to be like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah. we'll cut her some slack."
0: How do you think that translates to like ministry? of Faking it toward till you make it, and not admitting too much of.
1: Yeah, I think. Well, I think it's a leadership question in general. Yeah. Although I I find um, that you have to give people more credit than you think for their ability to read through BS. Um, And I think people know when you're faking it from a place of ego or when you're faking it from uh, the place of like we just need to get through this we yeah. need to move forward and this I might admit later that this is not the best road to take but this is what we're gonna do because we had to get through it and we'll have a we'll have a really honest conversation afterwards about why versus faking it till you make it forever because you're too cowardly or too afraid to actually step into a place of honesty at all ever you don't create spaces for reflection you don't create spaces for honesty you're not vulnerable with anybody and I think that's a major difference
2: Hey guys, it's us again. I want to talk briefly about this concept of fake it till you make it. Lay it on me, Dan. This this has come up uh, this has come up multiple times recently in my life lately because I'm so bad at fake it till you make it. <laughs> do you feel like you? Where do you sit on this topic?
0: Uh, I when I asked Danielle about it, I was genuinely curious because I have never been a huge Advocate of fake it till you make it, but when she talked about if you're always so self-effacing that you're like, guys, I don't know what I'm doing, guys, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. I know I'm in charge of you, but I don't know, mm-hmm. that would be really unattractive. So I was like, God, I, th- I think there are some things where you have to navigate.
2: I think, I think she she gave a great explanation, um and I, I think that it was the first time that I was like, okay. I get that because I, I almost wonder if I've just always been caught up on the language of fake it till you make yeah, it. Yeah, I don't like the sound of it. Danielle would be like the the last person in the world that I would ever be like, well, she fakes it till she makes it. Yeah. <laughs> like that to me, that just would have never, Um, I never would have gotten that sense. And I don't think that that's really what she's doing because there is not a, there is not like a, a peacockiness or a showiness yeah. or like, yeah 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 I got it, And inside, like I have no idea what I'm doing, yeah, there is a real genuine authenticity, and I think that what it is is instead of instead of faking it till you make it, I feel like there is something to believing in yourself mm. before anybody else does. yeah, I think that's I think that's the ticket.
0: I think that's what a lot of the like elite level anything are in society. If it's a businessman or an athlete or an actress or whatever is, you kind of have to be your biggest champion before there's a whole lot of supporters or which evidence is, of it.
2: Which is so hard to do. Yeah. That is like, yeah, man, if I could like unlock that cheat code <laughs> in my life. Uh-huh. But that is, that is such a stumbling block for me. Anyway, back to Danielle.
1: If you're in leadership for in a space where people are have incredibly different backgrounds than you do, if you do not make space to genuinely care about who they are and their stories and allow your heart and your mind to be changed because of it, you're not going to get anywhere because then you're just pushing your agenda on them. But I remember I came from a predominantly Republican background. I was raised in Virginia, although that's like a, a mixed state um, and a swing state. I inherited that ideology from my family, but it is really hard to maintain some beliefs that I just like loosely inherited that I didn't really firmly back up when I'm talking to a kid that I completely love and want to see them succeed in school and talking to them about their family getting deported or having kids say, Hey, I need a one to two day extension because my family's getting evicted from this place. Or talking to my kids, Uh, I had like one kid in particular who I'm thinking about right now, who is the only kid in his friend group who is not involved in a gang, but all of his friends were bangers. And cops took him aside one day and were giving him a tough time. And they went through his backpack and they were like, what's this? And he's like, that's my homework. And they were like, oh, and let him go because they realized he's still in school, but still gave all of his friends a tough time. And so like when you encounter those things, if you don't allow that to change you and affect you then I think you've lost your shot at uh, genuine leadership.
0: So how do you relay that back to the people that you grew up with, that you kind of look like? Mm -hmm. How do you translate those experiences with the people you've done the hard work and the heavy lifting of getting immersed in their life and their culture? And then how do you bring it back to the white Republican Virginians that you kind of came from?
1: Yeah, that's such a good question. I think it's also, I've struggled a lot. A lot with that because there's a little sense of like you don't know you don't understand you don't understand other people's experiences but then i have to remember that they have their own set of experiences that white republican virginians have their own um times in their life that formed their beliefs or firmed up their beliefs whether or not it was confirmation bias i mean who knows um and until they experience some of the things that i did then they might not have the same chances but my job is not to like politically evangelize my job is to stand up for what I believe in share my own experiences and I'm not responsible for their changes of heart or changes of mind but I am responsible for my own understanding of them Mm -hmm. and um to allow them to be where they are with what information and what what experience they have no matter how much I disagree with it but I think it's easier like I came from that space I I understand I get it I get the mindset Mm mm-hmm so I, I, yeah, I get it. I think I have a little bit of compassion in that
0: that regard. So how do you develop your boundaries with people who may hold views that you consider to be harmful or oppressive, but yet you may understand where they're coming from?
1: What are my boundaries?
0: Yeah, how do you develop those? Because like, I have family that like voted for Trump and all that. I love them. I want them in my life, but there's certain things I can't share. And some people are, you know, the echo chamber effect where they just cut it all out. Where they're just like, I'm just going to trim all this shit. I'm going to defriend. I'm going to...
1: Yeah, I don't have that option of cutting out people who might have had a different voting record than I did. Um, it's It makes me sad, but it forces me into a space of compassion because I love them so much. So when it comes to boundaries, I realize there are certain topics that are kind of off the table unless I wanted to get into something heated, but... Um, I think the best I can do is continue to love and serve them with my life and my heart and gain their trust. Because if I can gain their trust for the way that I think and for the way that I act, then it opens more of an inroad down the line for the things that I believe politically and, um, in addition are intrinsically spiritual. I think that's the hardest part though, is like whenever you start tying, um, political beliefs into spirituality, because there's so many, um, self-proclaimed christians or actual christians people who i love who are like really kind faithful wise people who do not have the same political leanings that i do and i I, it's that's a really hard thing for me but i love them and respect them and they don't they're defending and fighting for things and people that i um they don't think are worth the defense and the fight what do you do we always talk about this i'd rather be in relationship than be right How do you find a good church? Uh, Me or all people? Anybody. Instructions for anyone on how to find a good church. Uh, Pray and spend a lot of time figuring out what church is to you. Because I think that is probably one of the biggest um, things that I think I didn't wrestle with enough. And I find that in other people too. Is that they have an inherited idea of what church is or some other preconceived notion of what church is. And even if you have no preconceived notion, I think you should pray about what you want from a spiritual community. Um, And when you have those things identified, date around. Find the church that that fits or feels right. Even if it feels maybe not entirely what you thought you were going to be into. I think a place that makes you feel, um, not makes you feel, a place that. Where the teaching and the people make you a better person mm-hmm. They challenge you, serve you, and love you.
0: You were a part of a huge megachurch for like 10 years mm-hmm. where you had a lot of relationships and you had a lot of leadership. You had a ton of accessibility and opportunity and uh, exposure to just really unique people and things, uh, but you're not there anymore. So can you speak to what that decision is? was like to step away from that community.
1: Yeah. I loved that community and I still do. I love the people. Um, I love the heart and the spirit. And I think that I entered that community at a time when, to my knowledge, they really were one of the only churches who were thinking and talking like they did from an evangelical perspective. And, um, Getting people to like stop being so Christiany <laughs> or trying to, but also and teaching like really really interesting, good, heart opening, soul opening, um, stuff. It was good. I really I loved it, and the people were amazing. And there's like such a heart and um, passion to do whatever it is that makes you come alive for the sake of serving God, and whatever your project is or your dream is, like we can do it. We'll do it together. Sure, people will get behind you, which is like not that normal. Like normally in mega churches there's so much bureaucracy and approval and those kind of things. But we could do so many cool projects and they'd come and go and they'd start and they'd die. But it was so um very much like we are for you, we are with you, wherever the winds take you, as long as it's like theologically sound, um, then let's do it. And I think mean, that's really cool. And a church that embraced the arts, I mean that that spiritual community is where I got into spoken word. So I owe them that a thousand times over. And they were some of the first people who gave me a platform and a stage to develop that and believed in me and spoke into me and took care of me. Um, and I'll never stop loving them for that. And I was protected and, um, cared for in ways that I think there's a handful of other people who, who weren't, um, which hurts me. Like I was, I've never been directly offended by that space or by those people. Um, I've actually never been anything but deeply loved by by that space and those people, or at least that's how I felt. But um, I have to trust the way the Spirit moves in me and speaks to me in the same way that you have to trust the way that um, he, she speaks to you and in you and in other people. And there came a time where my spirit was sad going into the space. And it was only when I went in there, I got sad about things that were happening. And um, I get the concept of sticking with your family, no matter what. And that was my mindset. It was like, it doesn't matter the dysfunction your family goes through you are loyal to your family because they've been loyal to you. And those people in that space have been with me through a depression, through suicidal thoughts, through kind of a crazy little party time rebellion, um, and still loved me and still given me space to influence and to lead and had hard and honest conversations with me. So I felt incredibly convicted. I was like, why would I not do that for them? But there came a time where I was like, I don't, it just doesn't feel like my family family quite as much anymore so many of those people that I had been doing life with for a really long time slowly started to trickle away or became less active in the middle and in the center and in leadership and a lot of the people who I felt like had earned leadership by their lives by the true character of who they were were not necessarily in those spaces and who knows I know I wasn't in the heart of decision making all the time so who knows what some rationale was but I I didn't know how to justify it anymore. So I spent a uh, 2 years praying about leaving. And I did a lot of spiritual searching in scripture and other sort of an other sort of spiritual leadership um books in articles and devotionals about church and what that was like and trying to figure out a lot of what made me a better person, what made me come alive, what helped me understand God more and know him more and become more like him. And I realized that was not, the, that wasn't going to be the place for me. The most helpful thing that I read or did when I was thinking about transitioning out of a church that had been my family for 10 years, I think the most helpful thing was I didn't do anything in haste. That was the most helpful thing. all conversations, all reading, all question asking was not done in haste. And I did my best every time I encountered a story that was off putting to me to ask myself what the other side could possibly be. And I had a lot of conversations with people about staying and the importance of staying. I wrote a a poem and shared it in front of everyone where I talk about staying. Um... And I'm glad that I did for that season. I'm glad that I did stay when I was um, trying to make a decision. I also like one thing that was super helpful is I got a chance to um, go to a different country and um, and steeped in a lot of spiritual community there. And there was one particular community that I was around that they were also wrestling, they were a tiny church, and they were wrestling with like what is church. And I think talking to them was really cool and really helpful. I, was, I just needed like a shake out of my own perspective and my little LA church bubble.
2: I left angry. I think there was there was unresolved feelings for me. About the way that I left that community. And I think I treated the way that I left that a little bit like a breakup. And I think now having some space and some time. I wish that I... I, Yeah, there's things that I like said that I wish I had said differently. Yeah. There's, you know, some of my feelings might have been legitimate. But I wish I had resolved those within myself instead of speaking out of emotion or out of passion or out of hurt or whatever it was.
0: Yeah. I, I don't think there's, I try to be pragmatic about the, these conversations cause they're endless. Like the, the processing the past and regret and all this stuff, I get caught up in it all the time. Like I recently said at a, like a retreat that I regret the first like 22 years of my life. Cause mm. I felt like I hid from so many opportunities mm. and it was just like, at some point I had to make peace with that. Cause that's never coming back. Mm-hmm. And like, all I got is the next 22 or however many years to make bold decisions. And so I think about leaving a mega church where I found all of my best friends, like all of the community that I hang out with today. I found I found the job that I had for two years. I found, you know, the girl that I'm dating now, like I found so much of my, I found, I think I found like my backbone in a lot of ways because it was the first church I'd ever gotten plugged into. And it was the first church I'd ever really left on purpose as opposed to like, Oh, I moved and I've only ever left churches and communities because I moved. Um, not because I had an issue with them because usually I would just suck it up and think the issue was me. Mm. Um, or just assume that's as good as it got. And it was hard because I left it like a breakup too. Where I there was like the initial breakup because I was on leadership. Mm-hmm. And then I was just attending. And it's almost like how you have that weird friend period with someone yeah. that you break up with. Where you're yeah. like, ah, we shouldn't be doing this. Yes. Like I should not still be going here. We said yeah. we broke up. Uh, this is awkward. Um, And so I had that phase. And then it was just kind of wandering out into the to nothing. And dating around, even Danielle says that we're like, date some churches, find out what, find out what a church is supposed to be to you and then go date around. But if you're trying to date around without knowing what you're looking for, it's just as chaotic as dating a person that you don't know what you're looking for. And you keep plugging people into this like formless, um, outline. And so I don't regret the way I left. I was young I was figuring out my life. So was everybody else in leadership. Mm -hmm. I mean, tons of people have left that had told me I needed to stay. And they then left and had their own life crises. So I think we were all learning. Um, It's all what we needed for that season. And some people still thrive there. But I don't regret it.
2: If you treat a church a little bit or like a spiritual community, a little bit like a dating and marriage thing, then it kind of makes it okay to like yeah, I went, I was a part of that community for a couple of years and I'm not now. Mm -hmm. And I don't have, I, um, I wish them the best. I think they'll make somebody very happy someday. Yeah. It's just not me. Right. And I think that that's like, that's a more gracious way of approaching it. Whereas I think for me, it's easy to, there have certainly been times where it was like, that place is flawed. Yeah. And again, I think some of my feelings are legitimate, but Just because I came to a point where I was like, all right, this relationship is not a lifelong relationship for me.
0: Yeah. I will say this. I think the only thing that I would advocate till the day I die is that no matter where you choose to plug in your church community or what any community, even if it's a dating relationship or a marriage, that person or that organization better fit the values that you really believe in. Yeah, I think that's fair. At least make it consistent, which is my problem with people who stayed, that I think should have left a long time ago. And people who left, I was like, you have no business leaving. Like, you're just upset, and ins- and you're just super sensitive and immature.
2: So but you actually love this place. So you do. I mean, you do feel that there were some people. I don't know that I know a lot of people that I feel like would fit into that camp.
0: I think there are people that I, that were just looking for a reason to be hurt and victimized and left. And mm. they're the kind of people that get hurt and leave communities everywhere. And they're mm-hmm. like on a, they're like on a two year plan for getting hurt and leaving. How and I do lived you... with people like that, like people that moved into my house and I was like, Wow, you're just kind of this way. This is just your pattern.
2: How do you think you can kind of determine within yourself, like, all right, am I just am I just feeling the pangs of like, hey, it's time to go and that's okay or like, ooh, I have some unhealth that is causing me to bail on stuff.
0: Yeah. I think only a only a person like you can only know yourself and from the outside we can observe patterns and Mm -hmm. i think that's how i've tended to do it with people i'm super close with like i'm talking about like two people that i that was like living with and doing life with that i'm making these kind of claims about where i just saw like it's in their in their life in their nature they get their feelings hurt and leave but if it's like checking yourself for me i just try to make sure that i am a different person and i can I feel like if you keep track of what you've been through and who you are and who your friendships are and what you struggle with, you can kind of tell. Like, I think most people are surprisingly self-aware and mm-hmm. they can say like, man, you know what? As soon as something gets hard, I leave. And they just know, um, with me and, and with me in the church that I left, it was, I don't ever get this plugged into a church. Like I've to leave. This is crazy because I've never had it before. Yeah. Um, And I'm going to go back to the world that I know is like really hard to find a church community. I'm going to go back into that. But this place, if I'm honest, isn't what it was when I got here. So, you know, I'm in a healthy, healthy space. I've recovered from some friendships ending and breakups and finishing seminary. And I think I know what I need. And I just got to have hope that it's out there. Mm. And if we're staying because we don't have hope that there's something else out there that fits who we are, that resonates with our identity, then that's a shitty reason to stay
2: so it's, it's the exact same reason that a lot of people stay in relationships that are like mm. why are you staying in this relationship yeah It's so it's the same thing it's
0: oh i've had i've had multiple friends and i have no problem with this excuse because they know what they're doing who just orbit this church and dip in and get what they need if it's uh, a platform to speak or promote a project they use it mm-hmm. uh, if it's a place to bring friends who are like edgy and cool and can't go to a normal church and Mm -hmm. need lights and Mm -hmm. a concert and fantastic music. That's what they use it for. And that is their go-to place for like new people in the, in the industry. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, cool. You really know what you're doing. I wanted the whole pie. I wanted the whole leadership influence plugged in friends with the pastor. I wanted the whole thing because I was like, this is it. I built it into something it wasn't, and it could never live up to that. Um, So long story long.
2: No, I think that's great What do you think is the best way to uh I think the best way to break up with a church How do you have a healthy breakup with a church
0: Man, I think the, what Danielle said was perfect She yeah. talked about She left slow Don't rush anything Yeah, she left slow and prayerfully yeah. And
2: Don't have sex with the church Once you've already <laughs> broken up Stuff like that
0: I try to keep that policy with anything in life uh, Don't have sex with it Once you leave it <laughs> behind Yeah, Yeah I think that's where I try to leave it
1: I think the spoken word in performance poetry and the art of crafting a really good, honest poem allows people to be vulnerable and to own things in a way that there might not be space for in other places. So for a long time, when I was teaching workshops um, around poetry for this particular community, I well, had a bit of a reputation for being like the cry girl and helping people cry. And like people would send other people to my workshop to like get quote unquote therapy. And I think that was, uh, teased a little bit, but, um, in retrospect, I think it was one of the healthiest healthiest things I could have done for that community because the last thing you need to do in a a spiritual community is to hide. And if you have no space that calls you out of hiding in front of others, and that's the key part. It's not just like, oh, I go home and confess and talk with my best friend and then I'm healed and I'm better. It's like, no, if that's your community, you need to be going through these things with your community in front of your community. And you have to watch yourself get loved and accepted right there where you are, no matter how bad it is. And that's the only way you'll understand the power of God's love. But if someone admits something, and then they're not getting loved right then even if they need to get challenged and walked with or whatever but if they're not getting loved right then they're not getting shown God's love and so I think that is the power of that that kind of art or at least teaching that art and helping other people do that art in this space so like at the time I used to have a lot of like self-consciousness about being like cry girl or whatever but (laughs) in retrospect I'm like hell yeah that's great how great (laughs) if you were crying it's because you needed to cry yeah It's not my fault. It's because you have soul rumblings and you needed to hear them, you know.
0: (laughs) At least in my experience, I've seen that go really wrong multiple times where vulnerability is seen as some type of virtue almost. Ah, yeah, 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 yeah. Just because you're exposing a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it may not even be your information to expose. Yeah. So how do you you temper vulnerability in a healthy way?
1: Yeah, that's such a good question because I think that is a huge issue that I didn't have words for for years when I was in a poetry community that was not necessarily inherently Christian or spiritual. And that is really the place where I kind of, if, if Mosaic gave me the space to actually be on stage and to practice my craft, the poetry lounge is the place where I got to deeply refine it because I was around people who wouldn't necessarily applaud it just because it said nice Christian things or truthful Christian things. I was around people who would confront me if it was not good writing, which I love. And there i am so grateful to have been such a, um, a committed member of that community for a really long time, and to have those people as my friends because they're brilliant writers, and to this day my favorite writers. And that was the thing that I couldn't put words to, though what was happening in my craft, in um, a lot of poetry spaces that I was going into, and even some spiritual poetry places too. But or I'll say overtly Christian because I think the poetry lounge can be very very spiritual, but. Um, It can get addicting to share your pain on stage and get applause. When you are getting rewarded for the more and more vulnerable and cutting and derisive and um, almost kind of condemning sometimes of other people, that can be hard to make sure that you are in a personal space where you actually also heal. Because I understand the need to express anger. Like sometimes you just got to admit that you're mad because suppressing it for your entire life is going to bubble up and and seep out in really unhealthy ways. So if you need to write an angry poem that doesn't resolve and it's just blatantly angry, go for it. I just don't want to hear that piece 8,000 times for the next number of years. And I think that's the place where I had a couple of friends who were trying to call me out of as well. It's like, Danielle, this is beautiful that you're healing, but what about what about the joy in your life? And what about the beauty in your life? And what about the love in your life? And I admit, like, I go to poetry probably a lot more quickly when I'm sad or angry and when I'm trying to work through that because to me, I, there's not a whole lot of... I don't need to work through my joy. I just want to sit in and experience it. Whereas I use poetry as a tool to work through things and to comb through things. So I, I, get, I get that, you know? Like, mm-hmm. I don't necessarily write a poem for every season that I'm in because I want to capture it. But um, I do think that I want to see people grow through what they're sharing and some of my, one of the most beautiful things that's happened for me into Poetry Lounge and to see my friends there is to watch the arc of their writing and who they are and um, to trust that they'll continue on that trajectory Uh, Rants by Danielle, (laughs) topic women in leadership particularly in churches go. I completely love Holly Wagner, Lisa Bevere, Christine Kane. Um, those are probably like my three top favorite female leaders in church. And I think they have garnered so much respect from all people. Um, and I think they're amazing, but the fact that I can name far fewer of like powerful women in leadership, um, who speak around the world, Makes me sad because I think there's something so beautiful about um, the natural instinct to nurture and include and the gentleness with which a woman can be fierce that I wish was just um, more seen and more heard. I also... Colton, if I'm talking about like, my perspective f- from being in leadership, I feel like I'm going to have to drop some Christianese in this. I feel like I had so much favor from God, though. I've been protected in that way and elevated in that space in a way that I didn't necessarily see while it was happening. Because I've always been in leadership in things since I was in elementary school. I was, like, patrol captain. <laughs> and, like, president in middle school and, like, class president all the way through high school so like the idea of being in leadership and taking charge is not something I've ever been afraid of and it's a very natural space for me to step into so I didn't realize until much later down the road when I was looking for other female leaders to mentor me or who to look up to and to find role models it was a lot harder because they just weren't getting elevated and I don't know so I heard from a particular large spiritual community that was trying to like raise up women who were speaking. They were like doing this women's workshop and it was like, there are no women who actually want to speak. And I'm like, I was there for so long and I got to speak a, a, a handful of times, but not really that much. And I think there are a lot of women who are so spiritually sound and like crazy servants and have so many good things to share and they weren't invited into this speakers collective. And I'm like, who are you inviting? You are literally inviting all the women who don't want to speak. You're just inviting women who are there all the time. And not saying that these women who want to speak are and who are are would be good at speaking are not there all the time also. It's like very strange just the people who are who are like overlooked or not I don't know. I don't I haven't been enough I haven't been in enough mega churches to understand mm-hmm. um the process by which someone is asked to speak or to lead. Because quite honestly, there are women leaders all the time. Like you have women leaders in charge of kids' ministry, in charge of women's ministry, you have women's leaders in charge of, you know, like youth pastoring there are far fewer female leaders in general in church culture. But it's also like you're coming from a space that is, there are many churches around the country and around the world that still don't acknowledge women in leadership. Whereas like there are no nonprofits that I know of in America that are like women's women cannot be leaders. So you're fighting different historical challenges and different interpretations of a text, where there's like a very plain interpretation of gender discrimination law, mm-hmm. which is that you cannot do it in a workplace. <laughs> so like it's versus l- the Old versus, Testament <laughs> versus the Old Testament, and some parts of the New Testament there that, that is like, oh, yeah. women shouldn't lead and speak, and so yeah. the church has a different background and able to do that.
0: So how do you have a relationship with a book that has scripture like that in it?
1: Uh, I think it's all contextual. Chris Vallotton actually gave a really good talk about um, breaking down it. It was like a series of talks breaking down. Um, Old Testament and New Testament scriptures that talk about women and women in leadership and, like, talking about why it's so important to understand the context in all of those spaces. Also, if you just took the Bible literally for every single thing that it said, like, we couldn't do anything. <laughs> I'd be an outcast for having my period. <laughs> we couldn't play football. <laughs> like, I, you know, Colton asked me one time, Colton, you asked me one time, to identify a woman role model And who's someone I really look up to. And I remember I cried later on because I couldn't think of a, like a powerful female leader. I mean, I met Holly and that was helpful, but um, a powerful female leader that I like knew and really looked up to. Is that so bad? Wow. People are going to be really offended.
0: No, it's just, you're saying people in your life that you didn't didn't have that circle. Nobody in my life is offended. Yeah.
1: But yeah, and that made me cry.
0: What is something that men can do to help women lead better? Oh,
1: that's such a good question because that came up in our our small group. It's this idea of men supporting women. What is something men can do to help women lead? Ask them what they think before they share what they think. Hmm. Check yourself when you are going to be the first one to speak, and see if there's another a woman who wants to say something, or be aware. And some women don't have any problem speaking up. I'm one of those. I don't, for the most part, in certain spaces, not as much, but for the most part, I don't really have a problem sharing my opinion. Sometimes I want to be quiet and wait, but like, there's a number of women who just will share what they think. No big deal. Other women need a little bit more asking and invitation into it, by other women and by other men, or and by men. Hmm. Um, So I think that that's helpful. Is ask. Invite into the space. And take classes or listen to women in instruction for something that doesn't feel overtly feminine. Mm. Easy to come to me when you want a workshop about sharing your feelings because you think you might equate feelings with femininity. Harder if it's like, I'm going to go watch a woman teach me maybe a screenwriting class, an action screenwriting class. Yeah. Something I think that might inherently be more, could be perceived as more masculine.
0: Who's in your head when you're praying? Like, what is your image of that person?
1: I don't have an image. I have a feeling. When I'm praying, I have a, a deep sense of uh, closeness. I guess, I don't know. Hmm. Sometimes I call him dad. Because I like calling him dad.
0: Is that interesting to you as a woman to understand God in masculine terms?
1: No, cuz I feel her, I feel her as feminine all the time too. I feel her as motherly, but I also feel him as fatherly. And I think that's the place I wanted healing first in my life. I wanted to know him as a father. So I don't I didn't care about that language. It didn't throw me off. It didn't make me feel like less of a woman or like not feminine or not empowered if I was going to refer to as God as man. I think the only time that becomes a problem for me is when people use that language to oppress or to discourage. Which is why I have no problem calling God a woman as well. Is because there's nothing in that that I feel like is oppressive to men or exclusionary to men. Mm. In fact, it should be a, a means of healing and relation, like re-relating with the world and with women and with other people.
2: Growing up, my mom used to tell me a story about one of her early memories with me. I was too young to remember it, still a toddler, but it was obviously a memory that was important to her. We were playing on a beach in Thailand, and we were passing an inflatable red ball back and forth to one another. I don't know about passing. I wasn't a premier athlete at two or any other age, but you follow. Suddenly, and most likely, when I gave it a sad toddler toss or a boot from one of my adorably chubby limbs, A breeze caught the ball instead of my mother, and like a mean bully in an after-school special, lobbed it into the gently crashing waves. The waves began to recede, pulling the ball away from the shore and out into the Indian Ocean, which has a knack for being notoriously hostile terrain for inflatable red balls. Few ever return. I began to weep and wail with the Shakespearean gravitas only toddlers who have lost an inflatable ball can muster. My mother knew, due to being an adult person, she could wade out into the waves and likely catch it before it got too far. I, however, being a stupid toddler who knew nothing, only knew that if she went after the ball, I would be left alone on the beach. I did not like being left alone. Very few toddlers do. I cried after my ball, but as my mom waded out to catch it, I shrieked even louder, putting my mother in something of a pickle. She came back to my side, where I had returned to ball morning, and picked me up onto her hip parental instinct is likely to say hey it's okay it's just a ball we'll get another one it's okay but my mother is no ordinary parent she knew it wasn't just a ball it was my ball so she stood on the shore with me on her hip and started waving and calling out into the sea bye bye ball bye bye wishing it a fair voyage and many adventures my tears soon subsided and I joined her in waving to our old friend heading out to the horizon Bye-bye, ball. Bye-bye. Much has been said about my father on this podcast, good to bad, ugly to courageous, and many of you heard our episode with him and have responded positively. We appreciate that, by the way. Thank you. I have immense love and respect for my father and the wonderful work he has done. But the unsung hero of my family is my mom, Kai Prevet. Kai Prevet was a California girl from the San Joaquin Valley who loved rolling hills, pasture animals, and and small, simple homes. She used to race rodeo horses, and she dreamed of owning a small house in California, and if she dared to dream big enough, maybe a couple of horses in a humble barn. My mother never dreamed of being rich, famous, or world-renowned. However, the life she has lived has been one of near-endless sacrifice. She met my dad, prayed for him when she became a Christian, stayed loyal to him as he became one himself after her, and agreed to stay with him when he felt called to the mission field. The agency my parents were a part of was famously old-fashioned, to the point that women were not allowed to work or hold jobs outside of the service of the mission field, and this work would be voluntary. I heard a pastor once tell a story about a young man who felt called to become a missionary, but his wife was troubled because she did not feel any call over her life. She had no passion for missions work or the ministry. When she married her husband, she thought she was marrying a man who would have his church career, and she would have her own. The pastor told her, in all his wisdom and backed by the power granted him as a minister of the church, God has called your husband to be a missionary. God has called you to be a wife to your husband. In the tradition I was raised in, men were called and women supported. My mother has lived in some of the most crowded cities in some of the most hostile, inhospitable countries in the world. She has never owned an animal bigger than a dog and she has never had a small house or a humble barn. My mother has seen dream after dream, expectation after expectation, hope after hope, drift away on seas of time while she remained a loyal wife to my father and an exceptional mother to me. Bye bye ball, bye bye. It wasn't until I was a grown man in my 20s, once I had moved out and started a life of my own thousands of miles away from my parents that I noticed something about my mom I had never realized. My parents still live overseas, so it makes communication difficult at times, but my mom is prone to writing long emails, catching me up on life and discussing various thoughts and feelings. I had never known it before I started receiving these long emails, but my mom is a gifted and oddly beautiful writer. She instinctively uses picture images and word combinations in ways that are vibrant and easily imagined, and she comfortably discusses challenging emotional topics with grace and ease. My father was always the figurehead of the family, always the one carrying conversation at the dinner table or pointing to my mom and I in the pew as he spoke from the pulpit. My dad is a talented orator and a force of nature mentally, but my mother has one of the strongest souls and deepest wells of patience and kindness I have ever encountered. I've always known that my mother was a natural and quite possibly supernatural empath and that she had a deep love of human beings, particularly those who are often overlooked. In Romania, Gypsies are treated as barely citizens, racially stigmatized and pushed into crushing poverty. My mom never learned the language, but she gave candy to the gypsy kids on our street and made friends with their parents, much to the chagrin of our two elderly racist neighbors, who she also managed to befriend remarkably well. Once on a road trip in Spain, we drove past a puppy who was injured and caught in traffic as cars continued to speed by. My dad was driving too fast to stop safely, But my mom burst into tears, barely able to speak, simply whispering, We should have helped him. He was so scared. She feels the pain and the brokenness of the world around her in a profound way. She is often moved to befriend people who have longed for a true friend. She does not shy away from hurt or discomfort, but offers a shoulder to those who need to cry, encouragement to those who need to be lifted, and she poetically articulates emotions that are not easily shared. It's for these reasons, and more, that when I succumb to the darkness of my depression, the depths of my self-loathing, and the torture of my suicidal temptations, I reach out to Mother God. Father God is strong and powerful and inherently wild and untamed. But for me, he can also be intimidating and judgmental. And often, I feel like I'm not man enough to approach him. Mother God nurtures and bandages wounds. Mother God makes silly faces and makes us laugh. Mother God cries when we cry, and speaks softly when we're scared of the dark. Mother God stands on the shore of our lives with us as we watch the red inflatable balls of our hopes, dreams, and expectations drift away, knowing we are sad, knowing we have every right to be, but also saying, it'll be okay, it will be okay, because I am here. Bye bye ball. Bye bye.
1: When I am tapped out and need a boost, I try to go quiet. I'm am, I am moving all the time and it is probably one of the biggest spiritual challenges of my life to be still and to know that he is God. And so whatever way I can get myself back there to shut down and have a reality check about the importance of my life, how big and influential one tiny little person's life can be and how small and completely dust like our lives are also. So any space I can get into to check that recently, I've been on a kick where I like to take a bath, my phone away. I like it. Do a little meditation, take some deep breaths. Is it weird that I think that breathing might be like one of the most spiritually refreshing things for me? Remembering to breathe. No. She gives me a sense of self, self, a little sense of presence again.
0: If there's like a big takeaway for this season of life that you would be like, Hey y'all, this is the nugget that I have in my hand. I hope that you take this. God, I love that
1: question. I feel like I have learned so much about community and spiritual community in the past year because of this like experimental small group type thing that we've been doing for a little over a year. Um, and I think the biggest thing I have learned or am learning right now is how to let go of all the decisions that I've made that I don't like, and I'm still reaping the consequence from and to press in, assume the best and do the work in myself as opposed to, um, Accusing or assigning issues onto everyone else. But the world around me is only as beautiful as the world inside of me is. And if I'm not cultivating a beautiful world inside of me, why do I expect to see anything different around me? And I have felt the very um, ugly side of that where I'm not doing the work and so I'm sad and angry and projecting and uh, I'm frustrated with people and I don't have words for why I'm frustrated with them but I'm so mad at them. Um because I haven 't reconciled things or i 'm not okay with the lack of re- reconciliation i haven 't made peace with the lack of resolve, which is I th- is par for course in spiritual work and faith life, and then i 've also reaped the benefits of being like, "I love me, and I can't change what 's happened in the past, and i can't change a person, but I love them and i 'm going to choose to love them in any moment um so i 've been on both sides of that spectrum, and i 'm trying to learn how to still navigate that a little bit, but it's really hard. <laughs> really hard stop expecting your life to be handed to you in an easy pretty package and start creating a life that is beautiful even when it's hard you know it's so easy to quit and go on to the next relationship or project it's hard to dig in and commit to a small group of people that's the biggest thing probably i've learned about church too is how do you commit to a thousand people ten thousand people if you can barely commit to ten That's all I got to say about that.
2: I guess where I'm at in in my own life is feeling like I have a lot of really good people in my life and I've got some great friends and I've been really fortunate but what I kind of lack is that like core group that Danielle seems to be talking about like those, those 10 people that you really, really commit to in a sort of like a, in kind of a tribal familial way, um, that you are really doing like the hard work of life with. You're not just hanging out. You're not just having a good time. You're not just cracking jokes. You are doing the necessary work that really, uh, helps you become a more well-rounded person. um, how do you, how do you build that or find it? Uh, if it already exists, how do you how do you find a way into it? I'm just interested in your thoughts. Like I know I know there's not like one right answer to this. Yeah, mm-hmm. but I think that this is a this is I think this is a skill that you have as a person in terms of being intentional in your relationships instead of just like, oh, this is a person who like I tend to cross paths with, so we like, you know, we chill.
0: Well yeah. I, I think I'm attentional on a much smaller scale than Danielle. Danielle's the the small group that she has created that is her vision that I'm a part of. There's twelve of us and she's been crafting it the last eighteen months, but it's been years in the making. Uh, I just joined it last year. I I have been blessed to use a overused word, to know Danielle and to be brought into this group. We all pitch in at, at different levels um, of leadership and showing up and hosting and cooking, but she does the work to keep everyone together. Mm-hmm. I mean, with calling people and checking in and having long phone calls and texts about what do you need? How do you feel in the group? Do you feel involved? Can I help you lead? Um, are you exhausted? Mm-hmm. What would you like to see us do? Do you want to meet outside? Do you want to meet at night? Do you want to meet in the? More? I mean, all of these like endless conversations with you know, 11 other people.
2: There's something divine in that, in the work of actively pulling people into community. My good friend Gil is a really gifted producer and a show producer and puts on live shows and stuff. And he has one of my favorite quotes. He says, producing is dragging people kicking and screaming to their success.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
2: And it's like, Man, mm-hmm. that's so true because as often as like a comedian on a show or as an actor in a thing, it is that. It's just yeah. like, uh, what time oh, I'm going to be 5 minutes late and the yeah. producer has been there all day. They're juggling emails and calls and like yeah. they're handling all this stuff and they're just trying they just want to make a good show. Yeah. And if that show goes well and you're a part of it, you look good. Yeah. And that producer has made it possible.
0: I think if people were looking from the outside in and seeing twelve people hang out all the time, twelve people go to Big Bear, twelve people go out to dinner, and just being like, "Oh, I want that. It's awesome." I'd be like, "Do you?" Like it's fucking exhausting. Like
2: Danielle is like producing this. It's not a show, but probably
0: more comfortable with the producer analogy than the Jesus analogy.
2: Jesus, (laughs) look, if there's anything that the Bible says about Jesus, hell of a producer. Hell of a producer. I mean. He was Jewish. So, you know, (laughs) like she is producing good fruit. Yeah. Like to borrow a very Christian metaphor. Well, and
0: another, you know, probably overused Christian line, but I saw it on the, oh gosh, I saw it on the Hermosa Community Center the other day. It says, without a vision, the people perish. Mm -hmm. And I think any friendship or relationship that does not have a vision or at least one person to carry the vision is going to end. So even if you're casual, even if you live with someone that you're really good friends with, but you have no like vision for what your relationship is in 10 years, it's going to end eventually. Someone will move out or someone will get married or there'll be some fight. And what I think Danielle has done an excellent job of, of doing is reminding us of the vision and including us in the formation of that vision, because we had a, I think it was like six months ago we had a retreat again an all day meeting on a Saturday where we just said what is the vision for this what are our goals and what are what are like our core values it sounds cheesy and kind of like like a company or a corporation would no do this,
2: I, I get it but the shit works you know I think that uh, you know I think DB has the the ability to be that person why she's a motherfucking warrior poet motherfucking <laughs> <dude. laughs> <laughs> 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 warrior <laughs> poet oh um Dude, thank you for your conversation with her. I'm glad that yeah. I got to... I wish I could have been there for it, but...
0: Thanks for your stellar voiceover, man. Yeah, man. Sorry.
2: Um, I, um, I'm happy to know both of you guys.
0: I'm happy to know both of you guys as well. I hope you guys love this love fest that's happening right now. We're... Stroke Dan's inner thigh.
2: We're not clothed, <laughs> by the way. Uh, <laughs> we never the time to bring that clothed, up, but Yeah. Uh, yeah we, when, we, when, we're, when we're in the studio, a.k.a. Colton's bedroom, mm-hmm. we are disrobed.
0: Let that be the final image of the podcast. (laughs) We'll see you next time on
2: The The Back Pew. Pew.